For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is up? Welcome to the Los Angeles Dodgers podcast on the Believe Network. Hi, I'm J.P. Hornstra with the Southern California News Group. Sean Green, who I had a blast talking to last week, is back. We'll talk Dodgers Cardinals, Cardinals fans. I know everybody listening to this podcast loves Cardinals fans. Albert Pujols, Miguel Cabrera, Adrian Beltre, the Freeway Series, and just how healthy have the Dodgers been this season? Let's get right into it. Sean, thanks for joining me again. Good to have you here. Yeah, great to be back. Thanks for having me. Of course. As we record this, the Dodgers are on their way to St. Louis, renewing a rivalry almost as old as the National League itself, Dodgers versus Cardinals. And one of the stats that I get to look at every year when the Dodgers play the Cardinals in the game notes that are given to the media is the head-to-head record between the two teams. And as of right now, the Dodgers have won 1,036 games, and the Cardinals have won 1,033 games, which seems like mathematically impossible that it could be that close over that many games over that many years. Um, as a player, Sean, I'm wondering if you could appreciate a rivalry like that that had a lot more history behind it than the others. Yeah, no, it's it's always really cool. And I, when you're playing, I think most guys are big fans of the sport as kids and and appreciate you know the a lot of the history of the game. I, I collected baseball cards and watched a lot of old footage and different things. So I was, uh, I was a huge fan and, you know, I wouldn't have known that this specific rivalry was, you know, this competitive or anything, but, um, having played in it, I, it, it definitely ramped up. Um, in the early 2000s and we went and played them in 04 and lost. Um, and, you know, subsequently there was quite a few matchups in, in the postseason um, between LA and St. Louis and, and both teams, had some, some big star players and you know, it seemed like St. Louis was getting the best of us for a while, but, but, uh, you know, over the last, you know, definitely over the last five, six years, um, when they had met LA's had the upper hand. Yeah. The last one went in the Dodgers favor. The last few before that, not so much. It, it's one of those that you can appreciate from a neutral standpoint, because you know, it's always going to be competitive. It's always going to be fun to watch. You can, cliche, but truly throw the records out the window. Um, now, Sean, you would have played in both the current and the former Bush stadiums, correct? Correct, yep. Did you, did you have a preference there? Did you like them both? Did you <laughs> yeah, I mean, like hitting um, there? Yeah, they were both good places to hit. Both 
really good place to hit. Um, I would say the old Bush Stadium was kind of along that cookie-cutter style that so many of the, the stadiums built in the, I guess, the 60s and 70s, you know, very multi-purpose and, you know, um, didn't have as much of a, of a true baseball experience mindset mm-hmm. going into the construction of it. And the new stadium is, um, I guess it's not new anymore, but the new Bush, Bush stadium has, has that in mind. Um, and so it feels like a lot of these um, baseball specific ballparks and, you know, there the fans are probably, you know, from a support standpoint and the way they treat the opposing team, it's their first class and um, it's fun playing. They respect both, both sides and good play, and it's it's much different than playing, you know, in a in a stadium with a lot of animosity towards the opposing team. I'm glad you took it there, Sean, because one of the things that I think always um, sort of draws the ire of opposing fan bases is how the Cardinals proclaim themselves to be the best fans in baseball, and. I think the reason behind claims like that is usually specious, but from my experience, when you go around, um, I've only been in the current Bush Stadium, it sounds like the former was very similar, um, you don't see non-Cardinals jerseys in the stands. Um, you know, for example, like you go to Milwaukee, fans will be wearing Packers jerseys to Brewers games. You go to Dodger Stadium, yeah. God bless them, you'll see Kobe Bryant jerseys because Kobe was just that iconic and meant that much to the city of Los Angeles that you still see them everywhere. St. Louis, with all due respect to the Blues uh, who play down the street, I just feel like there's a singular respect for the tradition that baseball has there where like, you'll see Stan Musial jerseys. Um, even though Stan Musial's last game was probably played before most Cardinals fans were born. Um, and you just don't see that everywhere. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and when you say the best fans of baseball, I would say, bar none, as an opposing player, you would say that the Cardinals fans are the best in baseball because they have that respect for the game and the, the opposing team and are, you know, you don't get abused standing on the outfield for, hmm. you know, for nine innings. But, um, you know, when it comes to supporting your home team. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're amazing, but there's the Dodger fans are amazing. You know, the, um, the New York fans, Boston fans, Chicago fans. I mean, there's, there's a lot of places that, um, even through thick and thin are there and, you know, three or 4 million fans a year, um, and, and support of their home team. So I, I think it's, I think that's the big, the big differential is, is, uh, the way they treat the opposing players. Uh, that's a good perspective. Um, wanted to shift gears a little bit because there are two players whose careers overlapped with your own who will be playing in the All-Star game at Dodger Stadium coming up, one of whom is a former and current St. Louis Cardinal, Albert Pujols. And I just wondered how your experience was playing against him because clearly the early portion of his career, uh, the one that you would have seen up close, was a different version than the more recent one you know for fans who maybe don't remember that early career version of Albert Pujols uh, maybe you could uh, share some memories of just how good of a baseball player he was in that time yeah I mean his his time in St. Louis I mean he was he was on track to be you know top five greatest hitters of all time and he's still pretty darn close when you look at the pure numbers you know, obviously the, the Angels years, he had some, some power numbers and the, the batting average and 
So it dropped off quite a bit um, as the injuries piled up and, and Father Time you know, got a hold of him. But, um, you know, the, he was just a force. He, he hit three thirty with 45 home runs and 130 RBIs and pretty much somewhere in that range year in and year out. And um, that was, was, was pretty amazing. I mean, he made himself a better a better defensive player as well. He came up kind of as a bat-only type focus, and he worked hard and became a, a gold-glove first baseman. And, and he always had uh, you know, a lot of – he was always very charitable and, and cared about his teammates. And, and so he, he was – he was definitely and still is considered just an all around, you know, great ambassador to baseball and, and uh you know, a lot of young fans I think are still wearing that Cardinals jersey because of what he did, you know, that that first go around in St. Louis. Yeah, you just hope they didn't get rid of their jerseys after that first go around. You hope they kept <laughs> them right. just waiting for that second act. Um, um the other player who was a special selection by the commissioner of baseball to represent the Detroit Tigers in the American league is Miguel Cabrera. And you noted how Pujols as he aged, the power was still there, but the batting average wasn't with Cabrera. It's kind of the opposite, how the power has gone down. But as of this recording, he's hitting 295 for the Tigers. Um, this is somebody who, uh, you know, probably wouldn't have made it on merit. Um, probably needed the commissioner's selection to get in, but he wasn't that far off, especially for a Tigers team that needed a representative. Miguel Cabrera was a young pub for the Miami Marlins, sorry, the Florida Marlins, um, when he would have been playing against you. What what are your memories of young Miguel Cabrera? Yes, when he first came up, I, I remember distinctly, because I was playing right field, and one of the one of the first games I played against him, yeah, he's, a big, he's a big kid and had a nice swing, and then he hit a ball, over my head for a home run that just kept going. And I loved the ball flight. He stayed straight. It didn't slice at all. And he's one of those guys that there's probably, I, I would put Albert in that category as well, but there's maybe a handful of guys that come up and you know, maybe you heard of, hear about as a prospect, but your eyes kind of pop open and go, wow, this guy is really special. And he was, I think of all the people I saw, from a talent perspective, he was the one that jumped out the most because I loved, I loved his approach as a hitter. I loved his swing. Um, it's kind of, you know, I, I kind of view it all as an, almost the same approach, whether it's him, Manny Ramirez, Juan Gonzalez, A-Rod, like all those right-handed power guys that just Edgar Martinez that could drive the ball to right center field. And that was, there was a ton of them in that era that um, were really, really good. And he came up kind of at the end of that era and was sort of the next lead-in um, to that type of hitter, you know, from you know, from the early 2000s to this point. And, you know, and winning the triple crown and stuff like that is, I think people kind of forget that what he did. He had a couple, he won one, right? Not two. He almost, did he almost win two? He won one. He finished first in a couple of the categories on, let's see, you know what, that was the only time that he finished first in, in multiple categories, but he's won four batting titles, he's won two RBI titles, two home run titles, just didn't really get multiple except for that one year in 2012 with the Tigers. 
Yeah, I mean that that's just absurd to be able to do that. And that's a yeah, you know, that's a big stadium. I know they I think they've they've fenced it in over time and stuff, but it's yeah not a great hitter's ballpark, especially for home runs. And it's you know, spread out a little bit for average, but um and it's cold is tough it's a lot tougher to hit. Yeah, you know, basically all of April you're fighting tough weather and, and you know, he's from Venezuela, so you know, it's not like he grew up in that type of environment. He grew up in, you know, a lot of sun, beautiful climate and now he's battling snow someday so um yeah i mean he he would be the guy that i would say um was the i think was the scariest guy to have up at the plate in his era and albert was scary too but there's something about about cabrera that um you just felt like he was he was gonna guys on base key situation he was gonna do some damage I like how you brought up the straight trajectory of the home run um, that he hit, because I feel like nowadays we don't so much look at the trajectory first. We look at exit velocity first, just because it's available to us. And when I think about guys who hit home runs that look like that, it's, it's Giancarlo Stanton, it's Aaron Judge. And typically we're remarking on how, you know, it's a 110 mile per hour home run, for example, but you don't have to see that. You can just be <laughs> standing there in the outfield, seeing how straight it seems to fly over your head and, and how quickly it gets out, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, for me as a hitter, like, I, my favorite thing to do in batting practice when I was really going well was, you know, when people were shagging for balls, particularly uh, John Shelby, who was our first base coach, he had, you know, a, a few, he had a bunch of kids, so I think maybe three or four of them would be shagging balls and they'd go back slowly at first. If I hit, hit one, a high fly ball to center that I knew was going out and I'd watch them kind of laughing because then they'd go a little faster and a little faster and then they run out of room and then it's like 10 rows back. And that's when I knew I was really going well because it looks like it's, I mean, now I guess they would call it, you know, really uh, a lot of spin because they know the spin rate. Mm-hmm. But back then it was, it was just the backspin. And um, I knew I was hitting well when I was hitting balls to left center field that didn't slice. And I loved hitters that I, I loved watching hitters that were able to do that. And you could tell by their swing, you know, it's a lot of times you see a guy hit, looks like hit like a rod, hit a one run, you know, one armed home run to, to right center field that goes out by 30 rows. And you're like, how did he hit the yeah. ball so far? Look like he hit it with one arm, but he's able to stay through the ball and, you know, his upper body stays in the direction that he's hitting. And that's how he generates that power. So however they're teaching it now, I, I, I can't comment on, on that because I don't know what's, what the approach is, but I know that those types of hitters like Miguel Cabrera, like Albert Pujols, and other guys that I'm naming, they had the right swing that was creating that backspin as opposed to any type of side spin. Interesting, interesting. Uh, I want to switch gears again. Uh, the Dodgers are going to a different destination coming off of that St. Louis series. They are going to Anaheim, a very different sort of rivalry between the Dodgers and the Angels. Um, I, I did the dirt digging on this one, Sean. Not one of your favorite places to hit in your career, um, Angel Stadium. Um, are, are you a fan of the park? Are you a fan of the freeway series? Um, I am. I do, I do like it, and I, I was always able to sleep, you know, at home. It's close to where I live. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't have said that I hated it, but you know, I think early on they had some really tough left-handed pitchers, guys like Chuck Finley and um, 
and uh, I guess Langston was there, but I, I was always on the bench when he pitched. But uh, and then some guys that I also had trouble with with good cutters like Belcher, Tim Belcher, and then former Dodger and uh, John Lackey. Some of those guys gave me a lot of trouble. So you throw in a few of those guys, and you know the numbers dip. I think I, I hit some of them better. I know I had a, a good series one year against them in Dodger Stadium, and not so great of a series in Anaheim. So maybe it's just sometimes it's coincidence and sometimes the ballpark actually does make a big difference. Like certain places I'd love to hit in. I love seeing the ball in Arizona and Milwaukee and Fenway because they had a really good background. Um, Anaheim Stadium um, isn't one that I could, in my mind, jumps out either way. Okay. It's interesting. They actually had a bit of a, a tiff a couple of years ago where there was an advertisement in right center field that appeared to be messing with um, hitters. Uh, it, it isn't in the traditional like dead center area of the batter's eye, but um, if you're facing, coincidentally, a left-handed pitcher, it was sort of in the arm pass, and it was interfering with mm-hmm. the guy's swing. They had to move that um, at the request of, um, primarily it was for their own guys, but I, other uh, opposing left-handed hitters, of course, were, were um, having trouble as well, um, particularly from their angle. So a lot of guys have had difficulties with that park, um, but I think a little bit less so since they moved that one ad. Um, it, it's a different kind of rivalry, though, because it's it's they're not in the same league, right? It's it's an interleague series. It's a little bit newer. Um, the histories kind of run parallel rather than overlap. And I'm always trying to get a pulse for the intensity of, of the fans and how much they get into it. And... I just think they've been into it more ever since the Angels started calling themselves the Los Angeles Angels. <laughs> I think that bothers uh, Dodger fans more than more than anything else around the team. It's always well attended, if nothing else. Yeah, no, it's it's a fun series, and um, there's certain series or rivalries that are more fan based. I think others that are more player based. Like sometimes you can have mm-hmm. a rivalry that just sort of brews up from some you know guys getting hit or whatever it is that could be. You know, between two just sort of random teams, and that could last for a few years. You know, I think rivalries like the the Yankees Red Sox and the Giants Dodgers, um, those are the, the rivalries that I think are are definitely shared by the players, you know, equally as the fans, because yeah, you know, they tend to both have competitive teams, and there a lot of games take on an extra importance. And then you throw the, the fans going crazy. Um, you know, and and getting really into it, it just adds fuel onto the fire. I think with the Angels Dodgers, it's um, you know, it's nice to to have a road trip that you you get to be home. Um, so yes. I think the players enjoy it, and there's not, you know, especially the last you know number of years, the last 10, 10, 12 years with Trout, but now with Otani, you know, the, the Angels have kind of had like a guys you really are excited to watch. But not so much um, a team that is, you know, super dangerous or is, you know, is out, you know, winning a, a ton of games. So they're they're, they're a beatable team, um, but they have a ton of talent and guys that, if you could say who are the two guys in baseball that you most want to watch, I would say it would probably be Otani and Trout. And sure. they're both on the same team. So um, I think from that perspective, it's, it creates a little bit more of a fun rivalry when when both teams are really good. Um, then I, I think it it heats up a little bit because you know every game is crucial when you're trying to to get into that postseason or, or, or win your division. 
That makes sense. Well, Sean, I want to wrap this up with something a little bit more Dodger-specific, which is that we're just getting past the halfway point of the season, and it's gone a little underrated, I think, that the Dodgers have been relatively healthy on the position player side. Um, Freddie Freeman and Trey Turner haven't missed a game this year. If you look at Justin Turner, Cody Bellinger, Will Smith, Gavin Lux, uh, as far as we in the media know, they've only gotten routine days off. Maybe there were some minor underlying injuries affecting one or more of them, but nothing major. Uh, Mookie Betts and Max Muncy have visited the IL, but only once and not for very long. If Chris Taylor's foot fracture that he's currently getting over heals enough uh, for him to return just after the All-Star break, which we're told is possible, then the only major injury to any Dodger position player this season has been Edwin Rios, who had a severe hamstring tear. Uh, so, Sean, this is what I wanted to put to you. Being just after the halfway point, all-star break is coming up. You know, we know Mookie Betts is playing with a, a small crack in his rib um, that apparently he's able to play, play through. But could you give us a sense for just how common it is for guys to be playing through an injury that fans aren't aware of at this point in the season? Yeah, I mean, it's almost rare to not have any injuries or something mm-hmm. that you're um, sort of nursing or, or worried about. Um, whether you foul a ball off your knee or shin or something and, you know, you're kind of limping around or you, you know, have a little tweak in a muscle. Um, I think the, the goal, I think, is, as a player is to not have something that's, you know, first off is going to pull you out of the lineup, um, but secondly, something that's going to, you know, greatly impacts your ability to produce. I mean, the best example of a guy that, played an entire season and had the best year of his career was Adrian Beltre in 2004 had Mm. bone spurs in his ankle. And um, I think it actually helped him. It was his his front foot when he was hitting. And before that, he was a little bit more aggressive with his stride and would lunge sometimes. And it made him soften up his approach. He had to take a a softer stride, kind of slowed down his whole swing. And he saw the ball much better. And he hit, I think, 48 home runs and hit, 330 and, you know, just barely fell to the guy we were talking about earlier in the MVP crown um, of Albert Pujols. And mm-hmm. you know, I think it'd be a pretty good argument to say Beltre probably should have won it because I mean, he was he was the guy. Um, so, yeah, I, I think sometimes, you know, you as long as you can get on the field and, you know, it's not like you're having an oblique injury where you can't swing the bat or something or a hand injury where you, you just can't do it, if you can get out there and and play to close to you know full strength, um, if you're in that kind of eighty to ninety percent, you're good. And it's when you have something that's just preventing movements or actual um, motions that you, you just can't do. That's when you got to get out of the lineup. But I think a lot of players will tell you, and I'm sure you've heard it in your role, is you know, hey, if I'm on the field, then I should be able to produce. And I think that's that's the right focus and right attitude. Yeah, it's it's hard getting guys to confess to being at less than optimal health, um, even when they are, um, because they've they've got a job to do that day, and it's it's not to tell me what kind of injuries they're battling, uh, <laughs> even if yeah, it's, no. even if it's interesting to telling the story of their season. So for sure, and I had in two thousand three, I I had uh, my my lead arm hitting was was bothering me really bad, and it was like a kind of a frayed labrum situation. Mm. And I could play, and 
you know, was, it, my swing was affected a little bit. Um, I had a, I, I couldn't get as much leverage because I, I, my hands wouldn't, the further back I, I was with my hands when I started my swing, the more strain I would put on that shoulder. So I, I kind of, my hands would come forward towards my head before I swung. It's a definitely decreased power and, and um, some of those things. But, you know, I was able to, you know, hit the ball and, and, and play. And, and I didn't, I didn't want to tell people, for one, I didn't want to make excuses and say, you know, this is, you know, if I'm, if I'm not playing all well, this is why, or I didn't play all well, this is why. But the other, the other thing is I didn't want opposing pitchers to know, hey, you know, he's not really feeling like he could drive the ball like he did last year or the year before, so we're going to pitch him differently and, pitch sure. and target the team, the lineup differently. So there's, there's different reasons, I think, why guys keep it quiet. But, um, yeah, I mean, my attitude, even then, it's like, hey, if I'm on the field, I should be able to, to you know, help this team win. That makes sense. You know, and I'm glad you mentioned Beltre's 2004 season, um, particularly in the context of health, but I, I don't think we talk about it enough. There have been two seasons uh, by a Dodger player ever of 10 or more wins above replacement in one year, and one was Jackie Robinson in 1951, and the other was Adrian Beltre in 2004, and he missed six games all season, hit 48 home runs. Um, we could do a whole episode talking about that season alone because it was pretty legendary and you had a front row seat for it. So that was cool. Yeah, that was the best season I'd ever seen. And I, I tell people who ask who was the best player I ever played with. And I, even though like that was the one season that stood way above his other seasons in LA, um, I, I say, I think Adrian was the best player because mm. he, his defense in a, in a really tough position was just amazing, beautiful to watch. And, you know, I played with Al, Roberto Alomar in Toronto. I played with, you know, a, a lot of great pitchers, Roger Clemens and um, Roy Halliday and Chris Carpenter and um, Carlos Delgado, tremendous player. But the guy that was just different, I think, all around, the only thing he, he didn't do well is he wasn't a base dealer. But, you know, put mm-hmm. that aside, he played every day, never complained, and he got clutch hits, and um, again, like even if he hit 250 with 20 home runs, he would have been super valuable because of the way, the way he played defense. But you throw in those those big numbers and stick him third or fourth in the lineup, and you know you got which what we're going to see in another couple of years is a, is a Hall of Famer. Well, he'll be getting my vote when he shows up on my ballot, so I look forward to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, he's, he's, uh, he's definitely going to get my vote if I had one. So, Thank you for your insight, Sean. Always a pleasure talking baseball with you, and I look forward to maybe some all-star talk next week. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you again to special guest Sean Green. Come back next week for a special all-star edition of the podcast. This will be my third All-Star game that I've ever covered. Done one in Anaheim, one in San Diego. First one at Dodger Stadium, and the first one at Dodger Stadium in my lifetime. That's how long it's been. So for all those who are planning to go to the game or some of the festivities, I hope you enjoy it. It should be a fun atmosphere, and we'll be talking all about it right here next week. So long.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.